Welcome to the Huntback Country Podcast. This is episode number 443, and we are continuing our series speaking with state game and fish agencies. And today we have Greg and Emily from Montana. We hear from them about the tag application process, their point system, updates on the status of several big game species in Montana, and dive into some new topics that we haven't discussed with other states such as Montana's It's Up To Us Hunter Ethics Campaign. This is a great episode. Hope that you guys have been enjoying all these series. Again, if you have missed any of those previous episodes, we've done talks like this with Arizona, New Mexico, Wyoming, Idaho. Today we have Montana, and we are not sure yet, but today may be the last episode in this series, at least for now. If you guys have been enjoying this podcast, this series, or any episode in particular, thank you for the support by leaving a rating or review in whatever podcast app that you're using. If you haven't done that, it helps us tremendously. Just hit pause right now. Go ahead and do that. And once you've done that, come on back. Let's dive into this conversation. Greg and Emily, thank you for joining us today. I am excited to uh, continue the series we've been doing with all these states and today talk about hunting in Montana. So thank you both for joining us. To begin with, if we could just start with an introduction and background for who you are, your role with the department, and if you'd like to, any sort of personal background hunting background, anything like that, um, as little or as much as you want to, just to let folks know who you are, what you do, where you come from. If we can start with you, Greg. Uh, yeah, uh, Greg Lemon. I am the head of the communication and education division here at uh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Uh, you know, I've been pretty passionate about the outdoors my whole life, and, um, you know, I, I come... To this career from a career in journalism um and uh was ori- i'm originally from uh eastern oregon uh but i've been in montana most of my life so that's me i'm emily cooper i'm the licensing chief um i am born and raised in montana lived you know here my whole life uh spent a lot of time outdoors my kids are the next generation of outdoorsmen and recreationists so um you know, we, we enjoy what we do here and we take it pretty seriously and, uh, we typically have quite a bit of fun too. Yeah, that's great. I probably self-explanatory Emily in the name, but can you clarify licensing chief? I'm assuming you oversee really anything to do with hunting licensing and applications and things of that nature. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. As the licensing chief, I oversee all the hunting, fishing, and recreational licenses, including uh, Smith River Float, you know, everything from all the, the big game species and all the regular fishing to paddlefish fishing um, to um, uh, decals for uh, off-highway vehicles and snowmobiles. All of that stuff rolls through my shop. Wow. That's a lot. I was thinking that would... Uh primarily be hunting focused but yeah when you talk about anything outdoors recreation that involves a license or a permit that's uh that's pretty wide ranging yep we gotta we have a pretty big responsibility here very cool well we've been trying to start each of these episodes with each of the states just to get an overview of what it looks like to hunt in a particular state and focusing, of course, on big game for the purpose of our podcast. So, Emily, if you could just kind of give us an overview of hunting in Montana, application season and timing, and then I'd love to talk about and kind of clarify the point system for Montana and then get into is that, you know, a preference point or a bonus point, essentially how the draw works. But if we can just start with a 30,000 foot view of things like the application season and timing, that'd be great. Absolutely. So like most other states, we do have a residents and non-residents that hunt. Um, our residents can purchase licenses whenever they choose, um, and they are not restricted to uh, any particular amount of licenses that we sell. However, 
Non-residents are limited by Montana statute on how many uh, we sell and non-resident licenses are generally grouped in what we call uh, big game combination licenses. So there are three types of those. There's a big game combination, which includes deer and elk, and then we have an elk combination and a deer combination. So you have your option of those, and those are statutorily limited. So there's only so many that we give out. So for example, last year we had 50,000 people apply for 23,000 licenses. So we do, we are oversubscribed in applications. So we do uh, a random drawing for those. Deer and elk, uh, the application season opens, our license year opens on the 1st of March. And so you can start applying for all species for the most part. Uh, there's a, there are a few that you can't, and those would be, you know, not related to big game, but um, from March 1st to April 1st, you can apply for deer and elk licenses. And so for non-residents, you can buy those big game combination licenses and you have to draw that before you're eligible to be put in a permit drawing. So generally speaking in Montana, if you wanna hunt for antlers, if you want bucks and bulls, you're gonna to have to get a permit to do that. And, and you have to get your general license first. If you're interested in hunting moose, sheep or goat here, that application period runs from March 1st through May 1st. And then if you're interested in hunting um, deer, bee, elk bee, which are antlerless animals here, or antelope, you have that application period is from March 1st to June 1st. So we have quite a bit of a long season. Typically for the deer and elk permits, we, we draw those pretty early. We'll close that application period April 1st, and then we'll do the drawing uh, two or three weeks after that, depending on um, how everything flows. Can you clarify like people probably heard in there, especially I'm trying to step in the shoes of people new to Montana. You mentioned a deer and elk combo, which that like on the surface sounds very self-explanatory. It's like, oh, it's a combination of two species. But then you mentioned an elk combo. And I'm assuming folks may be wondering, what's one species? What is the combination in that aspect? So what is an elk combo or a deer combo versus a deer and elk combo? Uh, happy to clarify that one. So an elk combination license includes a general elk license, an upland game bird license, and the seasoned fishing license. So a deer combination would include the same deer, a general deer license, an upland, a seasoned upland game bird license, and a seasoned fishing license. The big game combination includes both of those general licenses and your upland game bird and your seasoned fishing. Got it. Thank you. And then so you... There's the license step first and then permitting afterwards. So can you talk about how that ties to areas within Montana um, and not just like, oh, I can go to Montana in general and hunt, say, elk. But what does that mean? Where can I go? Is there limited entry areas, things of that nature? Good question also. Um, so your general license and your permit drawing, that happen the same day. So if you're interested in purchasing or applying for a special limited draw area, all of that is part of your application. And we we draw that in a sequence. Um, so that takes care of, of all of those things all in, in one particular drawing in a specific order. Um, there, your general license in Montana is good throughout the state. However, the permits will get you um, some special considerations in very specific hunting districts. Some of them are limited, you know, you can to a limited quota for how many bull elk you can shoot or, or you know, meal deer bucks or whatever. It will say specifically in our regulations, if you require a permit to hunt a special uh, considerations in that area. Is that fair, Greg? Yeah, so it's really, it's, the license get, lets you hunt in general um, license areas where we don't have a permit. So there are there are quite a few areas where you can hunt, um, you know, antler deer, for instance, like like whitetails or or mule deer, um, that you don't have to have a permit. The permit permits you to hunt that species, you know, like a antlered buck or an, or a um, either sex bull elk or either sex elk in a specific hunting district. And so you would have, you might have a scenario where a non-resident would apply for a big game combo 
and apply for uh, uh, elk permit, say to a limited uh, draw area, they would be successful in getting their big game combo, but unsuccessful in getting their elk permit. And in that instance, uh, I'm trying to, I guess, use uh, vernacular that may be common to people in other states. Sure. This idea of like a tag, right? So in that specific scenario you just mentioned, they drew the essentially general in this case, like big game or like I think you mentioned elk specifically license. They would have an elk tag, right? Like they can go hunt elk, but they may not have drawn that particular permit that they applied for, meaning they have an elk tag. They just don't have an elk tag or in this case, a permit to hunt that specific like limited or quoted area correct yes okay cool all right so how do points come into play with this what is montana's uh like point structure and the operations of that being like a bonus point versus a preference point how does that play into this whole process okay uh preference points are only for non-resident combination licenses they are strictly applied to that particular drawing uh, only. Non-residents can purchase a preference point at the time of application. When they are applying, they can say, yep, I want to pay another hundred bucks. And uh, those particular ones are allocated by uh, true preference. How many, whoever has the most preference will be put at the top of the list. And then the maximum is three. So we'll take everybody with three preference points and then we'll go down to the list to two and we'll do that until all of those uh, statutorily allocated licenses are um, distributed. Um, in this particular scenario in Montana, the law is written very specifically that only 75% of those non-resident big game licenses are allocated by preference. 25% are allocated randomly to those folks that don't have any preference at all. So those would be the zero preference points. So the 75% is allocated by preference, three, two, one, and then the other one is just a random draw. Okay, perfect. A couple of very specific uh, listener questions that came through about preference points. Um, and again, I've been trying to mention this. Sometimes I'm asking these questions simply because they're listener questions. <laughs> I don't like. Sometimes I know the answer and I feel silly <laughs> asking a question or the answer to, but the question is, can I skip an application year and still keep my accumulated points? So uh, for preference points, if you don't apply in consecutive years, your preference points go away. So to get that maximum of three points, you would be getting a, you would be for three years in a row getting a point. You can't like get one, take a year off, come back, get another one and have two. You would start over and have one. That's correct. If you don't apply in consecutive years, we will zero out your preference points. Um, I don't, this is a question I would like to hear about. I don't fully understand the history of preference points, when and how they're implemented in Montana, but the question was brought up. How does, um, how does the department feel about the effectiveness of the changes in preference points since they were established. So again, I don't even have full context for the history of that. <laughs> I can't like elaborate on that question. That was just a direct listener question. You know, I, the department, we don't feel one way or another. We execute a law that got passed. You know, we don't have a personal opinion in this. So I don't have a good answer for you, Mark. It's just, you know, we do what the law says to do. And this, so I'm glad this come up. This has come up with other states and talking about um, I, I'm again, I'm not fully familiar with Montana's language, but like another state, there's like the game and fish department, there's a commission of like a board essentially appointed typically by the governor. And then there's like the legislature. So, you know, the state's government and those three entities. And again, in the case of other states have different roles and effects on essentially hunting, right? Like everything from mm -hmm. how many tags there are to what rules are enforced to antler point restrictions. Like you can go all kinds of different directions on issues that affect hunters. And it's not always the fishing game agency that is making those decisions, which I think is great to highlight. 
But I'm curious, what does from a 30,000 foot view that look like in Montana? So there's the department. Is there a commission? Is it just legislature? Like you just mentioned those rules and the department doesn't have feelings. Well, where did that rule come from or what is the structure of changes to regulations, allocations, et cetera, in Montana? I'll start with the department's role. So our role, uh, we are, we sort of serve an administrative role as a trust manager. So we talked about, you know, the the resources are are held, uh, sort of their their public public resources, public elects officials to set laws that govern those resources, and then they uh, those officials hire a an agency like us that administers the management of those resources. So we implement the laws. <clears throat> we manage the resources from a scientific standpoint. Um, so in Montana, you know, that's the function of our agency. So the governor, like you mentioned, the governor uh, here appoints a uh, uh, commission, the Fish and Wildlife Commission, it's a seven-member commission, uh, each one of our seven administrative regions is represented uh, by a member on the commission. And then that commission sets regulations, allocations of, of tags and, and licenses and, and who gets what, that sort of thing. And then the legislature is obviously an elected body and they create laws. And in, a, in every session, they create laws that govern the management of fish and wildlife. Uh, and uh, parks resources, which is under our administration. And so, uh, you know, those laws get set, then uh, sometimes it takes administrative rules to, or commission rules to implement those laws. And, and so that's kind of the way, uh, kind of a high level overview of how things are managed in Montana. So sometimes people get frustrated Hunters will get frustrated with us because because there's you know you know they don't like they might they might be frustrated with a law say that pertains to non-residents that there's there's you know it's it they might feel like there should be a different law in place um, but that's not something that the department can change. Uh, Someone a, a really good example is um, our uh, enforcement um, laws like like. Um, a lot of times, especially as we've been talking in the past few years about hunter ethics and hunter behavior, we've heard from a lot of people that they'd like to see um, penalties be increased. And that's just that's just not something that the department has any leverage uh, over. That's something that has to go through a legislative process. Um, that's that's the way the government works. I'm curious in instances. Um, and this maybe isn't theoretical, but it's it, again come up kind of in with other states and conversations. Let's say a scenario where there's incredibly bad winter kill, biologists on the ground are reporting, you know, a loss of herd numbers that should I don't I don't want to say should require, but would be benefited by a change in tag allocations, for example, in a specific area. And that specific scenario of, okay, we had this event that pretty dramatically affected wild game numbers in a certain portion of the state. The state wants to help those game numbers recover. Can the department make changes to that? Or does it have to be like, quote unquote, kicked all the way up through the commission and the legislature for an event like that? Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, we set... So, so, so in that circumstance, we would look uh, initially look to our B licenses to adjust to see what flexibility we have there, uh, you know, because that that we feel like that's our that's our sort of most direct lever to, to to protecting or adjusting or having some sort of impact on population. So we we through the commission process through our season setting process we do every other year we set. With the commission, the commission approves quota ranges for B licenses for our hunting districts. And so um, 
we we recommend those quota ranges and then they you know deliberate on whether they they think they're right and they take public input on what that might be and then they make a decision on what the quota range is the purpose of the quota range is that if numbers look to be rebounding we could offer uh you know licenses at the higher end of that quota range if they look to be struggling we could offer licenses at the lower end of that quota range um, and so that's the purpose of having that quota range to give the department the flexibility within that range to adjust uh, license numbers. We do that annually with our antelope uh, licenses. So we have our biologists go out and they fly uh, antelope counts as late as possible in the summer before we have to do a drawing. And then they come back and, and, and with those that biological data, to determine within the quota ranges how many licenses they're going to offer for the hunting districts. And the antelope is our latest big game draw yes. that we have specifically because of that. Bio, we want to get that biological input and it's structured, the system structured in a way that allows us that flexibility. If we were to see something that was outside that we felt was an emergent situation that was outside of those quota ranges, then uh, we would just, we would um, we would have the flexibility to ask the commission to meet for uh, to take that topic up and and we've they've come the commission has met on short notice over lots of things over the years and so that wouldn't be certainly out of the ordinary if 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 a emergency circumstance presented itself. What is the uh, I don't know if this is the correct term, but essentially the term limit of a commission member. I know you mentioned there's seven, they're governor appointed, there's one from each district, but how long do they serve? Oh, good question. I, I, they're staggered so that there's not a complete turnover, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure what the stagger is. I think it's at, it's at least four years. Okay. But it's, yeah. but I'd have to, we just, we just, the legislature just expanded the commission to seven members. So it had been five for years uh, mm -hmm. and they just expanded it to seven to, and yeah, 2021. Mm -hmm. Yep. So like staggered, uh, again, I don't want to get totally off in the details. I'm just somewhat curious. And I think there's, there is benefits to understanding these things. Like a governor comes in and say has a four year term, he could be appointing one commissioner per year just because of the way that essentially someone is expiring or like coming out of term on the commission i don't think that's it's staggered like that i think okay. it's i think it's there's there's a number of them that are served for the the same term and then they would either be reappointed uh and reconfirmed or okay. or somebody else would be appointed um so the i think the idea was my guess is is that they would that when a governor comes a new governor is elected there and there there's some um institutional knowledge that carries over from the previous commission rather than just have all new members you mentioned greg in there something about ethics when when things were brought up kind of in passing but that is one something i wanted to bring up you guys through Montana and the department have a campaign. Again, I don't know if that's the correct term either, but um, a focus on hunters and hunting ethics. And again, for lack of a better term, this campaign called It's Up To Us. Can you tell us about that, like the purpose of it, how it came together, and then really just the mission of of this campaign? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I appreciate, appreciate the question. So we we for years have heard from landowners and hunters alike that they wish we could do something about hunter ethics and so uh you know obviously we're out there our wardens are out there doing the best they can to police us you know hunters and protect the resource and ensure people are doing things the right way and sometimes we get catch the bad guys and sometimes we don't um but sometimes it's not so much a question of legality as a question of ethics. And um, so we've had over the years, lots of different conversations with landowners and sportsmen groups alike about hunter ethics. 
it's been really difficult to figure out as a department what is what is it that we can do but we we felt like our our role could be working as a as an agency to improve the relationship between hunters and landowners and the reality is is that you know when we talk to landowners that are you know um looking at getting out of an access program or you know shutting off access to their property uh it's almost always not exclusively but it's almost always uh surrounds the issue of hunter behavior and um so we decided we could do basically what is is sort of an education and marketing campaign with some partners um to try to try to encourage hunters to take more responsibility for not only their behavior but hunter behavior in general um because ultimately uh it's not just the right thing to do uh but it's going to protect access um uh, in for to today and into the future uh and so that's where the the campaign was really really born out of that that concept so the the slogan is it's up to us respect access protect the hunt um and the idea is is that most of the people that that cause the problems you know we know it's a minority of hunters that are out there and most of them probably aren't going to be paying attention to a campaign like this but if we can get hunters to take more responsibility uh you know pick up trash you know report people when they see violations uh, or people that are breaking rules on on our block management areas, then uh, you know we can show demonstrate to landowners that uh, there's a big chunk of hunters out there that do care, do value uh, the access that they have and the relationship they have with landowners, and are and are working hard to protect that. Yeah, to elaborate a little bit there um, again, I'm just trying to bring context for listeners who are unaware, you mentioned like block management and land access and private landowners. Montana has some great programs where landowners can enroll to open up their private property to public hunting access um, through block management. And that, I don't, I don't want to get into all the fine details, but just to clarify for people who maybe that went over their heads of what all of that meant, yeah. that's the short version. And then I am curious, I don't want to, I don't want to like, go down the rabbit hole for the sake of I'm not trying to throw people under the bus or what have you, but I am curious, like take specific instances of a private landowner who has been enrolled in block management and has opened up his private property to, to public hunters and they're thinking about leaving the program or have concerns. What, what types of issues is that? I mean, different things came to my mind and then you actually mentioned a few of them. Like, is it as simple as just leaving trash? Is it something more severe in terms of true unethical hunting instances or lack of like carcass care after a harvest? Like, and that, again, we can't like pinpoint to one issue, but are there maybe common themes or issues, you know, that, I guess aside from a general, okay, there's concerns over like hunting ethics and how people are treating this property or this opportunity to hunt. Like, can we get a little bit more specific on some examples of what that has looked like? Yeah. yeah. So it's a good point. And there's, so I'll, I, I won't even mention the stuff that, that you're, I'm sure 100% of your listeners would just be appalled at. Uh, but the stuff that that might they might that people good well-intentioned people might miss like so for instance you know you show up in montana you've been wanting a deer tag for years you finally get it you make the trip you make the investment um and you come sort of equipped with with all the tools that that you've seen uh you know sort of used and and promoted you've got your onyx you you've got um you know you've got your camping gear you 
you know where these where these access proper private land access properties are um you know where the public land is you know where the roads are and you show up and it's and it's rainy and you're in eastern montana you're hunting mule deer and it's rainy and all of a sudden you're dealing with gumbo that you uh muddy roads sticky muddy roads which we call gumbo you've never dealt with before in your life um and you don't have any choice, but because uh, all of a sudden you find yourself, you you, you want to get to camp. The only choice you see is just plowing forward. And this road that looks sort of peaceful and just a little wet suddenly turns into a big, massive set of ruts. Uh, you get to camp, you get your camp set up. And along comes a day or two later, along comes a rancher. Well, he, that rancher uses that road every day, yeah, except when it's raining because he knows better. And then to drive out on that road when it's been raining because he knows he he knows about gumbo he lives there now his road that he uses to get in and out of his property has a fresh set of you know 12 inch ruts running down it and um and it's now suddenly he's got something he's got to deal with that's a pain for him and that's the kind of thing that we hear from landowners it's not just the uh trash it's that it's that kind of of what they from their standpoint that kind of inconsideration that really is galling and 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 i think when you you know if you sit back and think about it and, and understand it from their perspective you could you can see why it would be um the other thing another thing that happens that's really common is you know we have block management every block management area has a different set of rules um and block management is our biggest access private land access program and so landowners enter into an agreement they can set up the rules however they want those rules are are on our website uh you can get to them through you know programs like onx and then they're printed out typically at sign-in boxes but sometimes people just don't know because that, that, that's a part of the research. Hunters just haven't taken that next step to understand what those rules are. They sort of see see it on Onyx and feel like, well, that's an that's a place where I can hunt. And all of a sudden, the the rules that the rancher has worked with us to define and explain, all of a sudden, they're getting violated left, right, and center by people that just aren't paying attention. And that's another really, really common example. Um, that that we hear from landowners quite frequently. Yeah, that's those are very helpful examples. Um, yeah, thank you. This this education campaign and everything you're doing through this for whether resident or non-resident, but I guess those examples or people just wanting to learn more because. I, I would also encourage people to check out this campaign, even if they're not hunting Montana, because a lot of obviously what is uh, what can be learned from this material and this campaign applies to just good hunting ethics, period, regardless of what state you're in. Um, so if you can just let the listeners know where to go to learn more, and then I'll also make sure to leave a link in the show description so they can just click on that as well. But I guess what's the best place for people to go check this out and learn more? Yes. Thanks. It's uh, fwp.mt.gov slash it's up to us. That'll take you right to our landing page. And there is, there's quite a bit of good information and we've got some good partners that have engaged with us on this. So, um, you know, there's, there's uh, a wealth of knowledge there for people to, to look at and not, and we're always open to ideas too. So if, if you know folks um, get into that stuff, or they have some other ideas on how to improve the outreach and the education effort, uh, you know they can reach out to me. Excellent, yeah, and I'll make sure to leave that uh, link in the show description as well. Great. All right, well, let's dive into some listener submitted questions. This first one uh, sounds like it was a, a segue from everything we just talked about, but it, it's not. It happens to be the first on the list. And the person wrote in and said, are there any commonly overlooked regulations by hunters that are new to Montana? I will be going on my first elk hunt in Montana this fall. So open-ended, of course, but maybe, I don't know if 
Emily, Greg, like either one of you have something that comes to mind, but anything, someone completely new to hunting in Montana, not necessarily a new hunter, anything in particular that not may one overlook? specific thing comes to mind, but you know, we do encourage folks to really read those regulations. Um, like Greg said, you know, lots of these um, private property owners open up their land and, and we need to be courteous to whatever uh, specific things that they have, you know, restrictions on their property, you know, trespass is a big deal here. Um, we just want to make sure that you read the regulations that you're really sure. And, and we have a, a call center here on licensing that if you have questions, please give us a call. If you say, you know, I don't know whether I can hunt this side of the river or not, give us a call. That's what we're here for. Yeah, I would, I would say um, one of the things I know that varies between states is how private land is uh, posted. And so um, in Montana, the law states that you have to have permission to hunt private land. And in some states, I know that's not the case. Like if it's not posted, um, you can hunt it, but that's, that's not the way it is in Montana. And in Montana, there's a, a ton of private land that is not, there's no obvious sign or there's not a, a you know, an obvious marker, a, you know, a red uh, orange top fence or something like that, that would say it's posted. Um, but for hunting in Montana, you have to have permission to hunt private land. And so that, that's one thing that I know we run into a lot. And then <clears throat> some, in some circumstances, there's, there's, there's places where we have uh, state land that is in uh, block management areas that require a sign-in or, or might even require a reservation. And so people um, get in trouble by thinking it's a state, since it's state, they can access it, but actually it, it depends on, 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 it might not, that might not be the case because it's enrolled in another program. And so, you know, people need to really pay close attention um, to, you know, the information that's out there, you know, and uh, double check if they've got any questions. This, I guess, as we're talking private and public, someone wrote in and said, I've heard about recent cases of corner crossing, but I don't have a good grasp of the outcome of those cases. Can you explain where things stand? I'm not trying to open up a political debate, but like, um, yeah, it's, I think it's a great question for someone like this who's like, I've heard of corner crossing, but I don't know exactly what's going on here. Yeah, so the uh, there haven't been there hasn't been any uh, recent ish cases in Montana that have have been adjudicated to any extent. So uh, our position uh, is that uh, corner crossing um, is not corner crossing in the in the sort of the the legal definition where two public squares connect uh and there's private land uh on on the the checkerboard corners um that corner crossing is is not legal and people should get the permission from the landowners uh adjacent to cross at that point uh however um you know we in the circumstance where uh we corner crossing is is as evident our our uh enforcement folks will refer that to the county attorney's office in that particular county and it'll be up to the county attorney as to whether or not to um file charges there was numerous questions and i'm just trying to lump them all together on harvest reporting in montana um Again, th there was different angles, different questions, but I guess to lump it all together, one, can you tell us what harvest reporting looks like for big game hunters in Montana? And then two, maybe more specifically, why it's not 100% mandatory. So in Montana, 100% uh, mandatory harvest is not required on everything. However, there are some species such as moose, sheep, goat, mountain lion, bear. Those particular species do have mandatory reporting. Uh, however, deer and elk do not. That is a decision made by the Fish and Wildlife Commission. And um, so right now, it, it just depends on species, whether it's mandatory reporting. Um, maybe I'll ask Greg this question, but I know that we do hunter surveys for harvest and hunter days, correct? 
Yeah, so we do um, we do hunter harvest surveys every year. We don't call every licensed hunter, but we call a big chunk of them, and uh, we ask them, you know, their success uh, for deer and elk um, and antelope, uh, and then we ask some other questions. So we get a we get a pretty good sense of success rates for hunters based on those hunter harvest surveys, but it's not the same as mandatory reporting. And is that call only, or is there like also a an email with like an online form to self-report data like that? Uh, there's not yet. Um, there, we're we're working on. Uh, we have a mobile app, um, the MyFWP mobile app, where it's a it's a digital wallet that holds your uh, licenses, and also uh, is an uh, app with that you can um, validate your electronic tag, your e tag. Uh, and we're working on some technology that would allow for that mandatory or that reporting through that app, but but that's not in place yet. So the 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 way we gather that information currently is through those hunter harvest surveys. Under the current structure and like procedure, the people who are selected to be contacted for these surveys is it is there. I guess my question is, is there any geographic distribution to that? Or is it like, hey, there was, you know, 50,000 hunters, we randomly picked X amount, right? Um, or is there like more strategic, like we're trying to sample size, like the state and make sure we're kind of covering it more broadly, which I know would be tough to do with general tags. But of course, you also have those special permits mixed in there. Yeah, I think it's random. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know how it, how it's done with non-residents, um, but I but I, I I think it's pretty random. But but I I will say you know I, we call a lot of hunters because I can't think of a year that I haven't been called actually. Yeah, I got a call this year too. Maybe they just like checking up on me. But... <laughs> <laughs> They're just keeping tabs on employees, making yeah. sure everything's going up and up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. A lot of questions about grizzly bears. Uh, would like to start here. Is there a management plan in place that would become effective upon grizzly bears being delisted? So, like, is Montana already working towards, hey, if bears become delisted, like, here's our management plan, here's our population goals, et cetera? We spent about a year working on a management plan. Yeah, it's still draft form, so it's not final yet. Um, but we do what we that management plan looked at grizzly bears in Montana. So, the Montana has um, parts of four recovery zones: uh, the Bitterroot, the Cabinet Yak, the Northern Continental Divide, and the um, Greater Yellowstone. And uh, so we we sort of pulled in some of the conservation strategies that were in place for like the NCD, the Northern Continental Divide, and the in the Greater Yellowstone, along with our other, uh, along with sort of a broader management plan, and that that should be finalized within the next few months. And that plan that plan would 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 be um, a guide for us prior to delisting, but. But would all would obviously be in place post delisting. De um, the other thing that we've done um, <clears throat> that through the legislature passed uh, a statute uh, or, or let some legislation this year uh, into statute that required the Fish and Wildlife Commission uh, pass some administrative rules on how they would uh, manage uh, bear grizzly bear. Uh, conflict mortality. So the law established that a landowner could kill a bear that was attacking its uh, livestock or its property. Uh, but the number of bears that were allowed to be killed in that circumstance would be would be limited by a quota, an annual quota set by the Fish and Wildlife Commission. So we put all of that framework in place. Uh, so that is is set now um, to go into effect once grizzly bears are delisted. And the reason we, we've we done those two things 
along with petitioning for delisting in the Northern Continental Divide and, and Wyoming's petition for the delisting in the greater Yellowstone area, there is, we want to, you know, as federal oversight steps goes away with delisting, we want to make sure that uh, our management is predictable. Everybody's aware of it, uh, how we're going to manage grizzly bears once they're off the endangered species list. From the the research that's gone into that plan, I'm sure this ties into some of the specific questions we got surrounding current populations, how those populations are estimated, like how those numbers are established, I suppose. And then do they, you know, roughly match objectives, greatly exceed objectives? If you could just kind of talk about that intersection of, well, here's what we think the population's like currently, and then here's kind of how that equates to, uh, again, I know this management plan is in draft, but what may be the future ideal capacity of, of bears? Yeah, it's a good question. And, I, and, and so we, grizzly bears are hard to count. Uh, and so there's some real specifics in the plan on how we count and track bears. Um, you know, there's, 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 Places called the demographic monitoring area, monitoring area, which are the core of the recovery zones, which is where we look to count bears from. Um, what I, what I, and so it's, it's, it's. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, detail there that probably um, not as relevant as just as sort of understanding that we both, both the NCD and the Greater Yellowstone. Uh, they've both surpassed recovery goals. They're both they're both in our mind, obviously, because we're asking for them to be delisted, are are well over uh, the recovery levels that were initially set, and they need to be delisted. Now, obviously, state management. Uh, our goal is to is to protect that species uh, so that populations don't fall into that. Uh, um, problematic uh area where they need to be back on the endangered species list so we feel like with our management plan and the uh administrative and, and legal framework that is in place uh we've got uh a really solid um framework for managing bears uh above the recovery levels uh for you know for now and forever Let's see. Let's transition to mule deer. Uh, again, sticking with listener questions that came through for mule deer. Um, again, this is a question where I think there's context that I don't understand. So <laughs> let me just ask the question. It says, has there been any improvement in overall buck numbers and buck age class since shortening the season in certain units? Uh, and then that individual went on to list five yeah. plus units where I'm assuming uh, that that has taken place. So I guess um, for someone like me, who's ignorant of this question, understanding those shortened seasons, maybe when that happened. And then obviously the the crux of this question, what, what have you learned from it or what can we take away from the effectiveness of that? I'm going to hit a couple of these. Uh, I'm going to roll into the next one too, just in the interest of time. Sure. Um, we have, we, we, that change in those hunting districts is, is been, uh, I think just last year was the second year. So it's been too soon to tell yet. So we're continuing to monitor those. Um, we're continuing, you know, our biologists are, are, are monitoring those areas to look at, see, to see if the regulation change was effective. So, you know, check back with us because we'll have more in a couple, we'll have more sort of, understanding of how the impact what the impact's been in a couple of years but overall for mule deer i wanted to you know we've heard a lot of concern about mule deer statewide over the past few years we've we're now um we we just um took uh uh submissions for people interested in being on a mule deer advisory committee and and the goal of that committee is to help get us sort of on the right path with doing a new mule deer plan. So this year we're going to be looking at crafting a new mule deer management plan. Um, and so, you know, 
you know, mule deer, what affects mule deer populations um, varies from where you're at in the state. Um, you know, Northwest Montana is very different than Northeast Montana in terms of habitat and climate and conditions. Um, but the consistency is that people are worried about mule deer numbers, which, which in some places are doing okay, but in a lot of places are down. And so, um, overall, mule deer management is is in in how we're moving forward with it is right at the top of our list. For a species like mule deer, or even throw in elk, um, is there a specific cadence to management plans, or is that? Hey, let's implement this management plan, and we'll, you know, reevaluate as necessary, right? Yeah, uh, there really isn't. Um, a, you know, we I think I think we like to have uh, comprehensive reviews of of those plans every you know five years, but we also want to create plans that aren't just pieces that sit on a shelf, but that were they're malleable and they're adjustable. Um, and, you know, based on what the, the science is showing us on the species for the particular plan. Again, this can apply to other species, but for mule deer is the example. What goes into an understanding of populations and changes in populations? I'm assuming that could be obviously hunter reporting. Um, that could be biologists who work that area who are doing, you know, boots on the ground, like physical glassing, scouting, maybe population counts at certain times of year when deer are concentrated, uh, maybe flying, et cetera. So I guess, you know, there's many ways you can try to gauge the health and numbers of a population and her dynamics and age class and buck to doe ratios, et cetera. But what does that look like for Montana? Yeah. So (laughs) I would say all of the above. And then in addition, like it's really important for us to listen to what landowners are seeing. So, so we have a lot of landowners that really are engaged with us on and and concerned when they see wildlife numbers decline. And and you know, as it pertains to mule deer, you know, in the past couple of years, we've had a lot of landowners, you know, come to us and say, "Man, we, you know, we used to see a lot of deer in our fields, and now we're not seeing very many, and we're concerned." And so that's a that's a that's an input that that also uh, is something that we pay a lot of attention to. Speaking of landowners, and this transitions to elk just because it's the context of a listener question that came through, but um, someone was asking about elk quotas being established and then kind of the intersection of landowner complaint versus uh, what they phrased as the true carrying capacity of an area. So I guess if you could talk about... Um, management of elk and elk numbers and then potentially even the influence of like landowner depredation and things of that nature. Yeah. So the good news is, is we just finished an elk plan and that's on our website. That's, that's final. And and there's a lot of really good information. And so if you have a particular hunting district that you're interested in, in sort of what our objectives are and why, why, what are some of the issues that we're looking at in that, Honey district, those are outlined pretty in in pretty great detail within our elk management plan, um, and it's not it's it's very uh, approachable. It's not a it's not this this uh, plan that you have to thumb through a lot of pages to find. You know this one hunting district. We have a big section of the plan is broken out just by hunting districts, and so each hunting district has a chart. Uh, that talks about, you know, elk, elk objectives, you know, habitat, uh, social tolerance, all of those things. But but to be specific, you know, landowner uh, input is it was factored into how we set those uh, hunting district objectives within the plan. And so that plan was out for a lot of public comment. We held a lot of public meetings. Um, we got a lot of input in and we took all of that input, including, you know, both landowner and hunter input to, to come up with with um, population objectives for specific hunting districts. Um, sticking with elk and just this idea of population, there was questions on elk numbers in the greater Yellowstone area and in particular um, 
obviously the the interaction with wolves there. So I guess to open the question up more broadly than the way it was asked would be to talk about elk numbers in the greater stone yellow area, the influence of wolves, and then associated with that, I guess the management of wolves in the greater Yellowstone area. Yeah. And I don't have the specifics, uh, you know, a good grasp on the specifics for those hunting districts. Uh, you know, I was just looking through our plan uh, before we got on and, and there's several hunting districts in that area. Um, yeah. But what I would say is that, uh, you know, we've evaluated, we, through that elk management planning process, we evaluated, you know, all of that sort of input. So, so um, tr the trajectory of, of the population um, and um, in areas where we've seen decline in numbers, um, you know, that we consider that when figuring out what, what should we, what should the population objectives be um, in the, I will say this in the uh, greater Yellowstone area, you know, particularly in the Paradise Valley, there's a lot of competing interests um, and a lot of different concerns. And so uh, disease management's part of that, uh, predator management's part of that, um, you know, and then obviously um, the concerns from hunters on, you know, be having access to, um, you know, elk and, and, a, and quality hunting opportunities is also a you know, a priority. So there's a lot of things to balance in that, in that area. This has been great. I know, uh, we're coming up on the time cap here to, to wrap things up. One, I want to make sure we get all those links included for, um, the it's up to us hunter ethics campaign. We'll do that. This elk management plan you said was just finalized. I will uh, love to follow up with you and be sure we include that. And then even, the potential of a new uh, Mueller plan and the, what did you say? I don't want to use the wrong term, task force <laughs> or uh, um, the process I, there. That's coming. Yeah. Okay. Advisory committee. Excellent. So I'll try to include as much as we can in terms of links that point to all that upcoming um, for the show. And then just to wrap up, uh, and this could go many different ways, of course, but I just want to make sure that give you guys the floor is there anything else that you just want hunters to know maybe address misconceptions things of that nature um, before we wrap this conversation up uh mark i think we just touched really really briefly on bonus points and i'd like to to talk a little bit more about that if that's okay please yeah thank you bonus points are different from preference points so preference points are only specific to those non-resident combination licenses However, bonus points are eligible for purchase for both residents and non-residents, and they give you more opportunities in a drawing, um, but not for those non-resident big game combination licenses. So they don't apply to those. However, you know, bonus points prior to uh, going into the drawing are squared. So if you have five bonus points and we'll square those and give you 25 opportunities in a drawing to draw a specific license or permit. Okay. And then would those bonus points apply in the same way that like you have to keep uh, attaining those each year or you're reverted or is that totally separate? So bonus points are different from preference points in that uh, they don't expire. So if you don't apply every year, we'll hang on to those for you. Okay. And then those bonus points are essentially just applying to uh, more of like those limited entry limited quota permits as you said not the general combination big game licenses correct yes okay so on the other the thing with bonus points too is they're not like preference points you know where you where you it's a preferential drop priority. priority bonus points just give you more opportunities in a random drawing and so so that's why we get a lot of questions all the time. Well, I have 20 bonus points and this guy that, you know, my buddy just has zero. He just drew a tag. Well, that's kind of the random nature of the drawing. Um, just because you don't have any bonus points doesn't mean you're not going to get a tag. And just because you have 20 bonus points doesn't mean you are going to get a tag. So um, it's important to remember that that bonus points give you more chances in a random drawing. Yeah, preference points, again, to, to recap, I'm just trying to put this in English and, and recap for people <laughs> who 
maybe getting lost between the two. So a big game combination license, as we talked about before, uh, the elk and deer combo, the deer combo, or the elk combo specifically, strictly 75% of those for non-residents use preference points and they go three, two, one. So the guy with three preference points is up first, go through those, go to folks with two preference points, etc. down the list. And if there's any left over, uh, they could go to someone with no points. And then additionally, 25% of the total number of those licenses don't use any points at all. No preference point, no bonus point, etc. Correct so far? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, separate from that, so separate from a like a general big game combo license, more of the limited entry, quoted, unit specific type areas, hunting opportunities, that is where the bonus points come into play. And for bonus points, it's not who has the most, but it's, hey, we're going to do a random draw. And if Mark has five bonus points, we're going to square those and put his name in the hat 25 times. But Tim, who had no bonus points, could easily get drawn, right? Because his name was in the hat as well. It just wasn't in as many times. And it's a total random draw for that. Correct. So the the one thing that for our your non-resident listeners to know is that there is a limit on the non-resident permits, and that's what, 10%? Yes, that's true. Good point, Greg. Um, so any amount of quota that they've sent or they've set on those limited licenses or permits, uh, by law, the non-residents are restricted to a maximum of 10% of those. So if we have a, per, a permitted area that has 100 uh, tags, 10% of the 10 of those tags are going to go to non-residents. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No more than 10. No more than 10, right. And then you said the was it what did you say earlier 50,000 that's on licensing for big game combination tags for non-residents, is that correct? Yeah, I think that's that's I mean, around a rough the, number. I seem I think it's a little bit more. I think it's around fifty eight thousand people applied for non resident uh, general big game licenses. Okay, and there's how many available? It was fifty eight thousand issue applied and twenty five thousand available, roughly. Is that what it was? Twenty three. Twenty three thousand. Okay. Yep. So I guess part of my question is to clarify and draw some distinctions. If me as a non resident wants to apply for a special permit that's a mm-hmm. mule deer and I'm awarded that, that doesn't take away from the 23,000 general uh, opportunities, does it? Right? Like they're separate, right? So, so you have to draw a general license before you're put into the permit drawing. So you're going to have to score one a a general license, one of those 23,000 available in order to even be put into the permit drawing that has a maximum limit of 10%. So to be realistic, it's pretty tough to draw a permit as a non-resident. Yeah. Okay. And you said though, that that does happen at the same time, meaning um, I can apply once for that general license and also say, I also want to, as part of that, put in for this special permit, correct? Correct. You do that at the very same time on the very same application. Okay, cool. All right. Glad we revisited that and hopefully circled back to make some clarification. If you need some clarification, email Greg or I on any of this. Excellent. My last pitch, Mark, is to remind folks that to apply early. Don't wait till the last minute. Um, It just gets super, super, super busy. Uh, our licensing call center, I got five people answering the phone. We'll take about 40,000 phone calls. So wow. apply <laughs> early so you have time if you have questions. You know, lots of people wait till the last day and it's just it's just difficult and chaotic. And so we encourage everybody all the time, you know, take a minute, look through the regulations, look through the applications um, and and let us help if we can. Anything else to uh, add just uh to conclude or that we didn't hit from your perspective greg uh i think we're good 
always a lot to talk about. There is. Yeah. And I know we, we certainly didn't cover everything we could, but uh, yeah, thank you for taking the time that you guys did today uh, to get through that. Um, yeah. Such a great recap of the process of hunting in Montana and then answering those direct listener questions. So again, thank you for the time. Thanks, Mark. Well, again, thank you to Greg and Emily and Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks for joining us on this episode. If you have any questions for us, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com and we will answer those on a future episode. And if you haven't yet, be sure to hit subscribe or follow in whatever podcast app that you're using so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>